following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here. If I haven't yet had a chance to meet you, my name is Michael and I'm the pastor at Trinity Grace. And if you've got a copy of God's Word, now would be a great time to open it to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be spending a majority of our time looking at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And I'll also touch on Matthew chapter 1, but you don't have to turn there. If you just stay in 2 Samuel, that will be fine. And kids, as always, we're very glad that you're here this morning. And hopefully you've picked up one of the kids' bulletins from the front table. And I'd love for you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about clogged pipes, clogged pipes. Second, be listening for where kings should be in the springtime of the year. And third, be listening for the name of Bathsheba's second son with David. Be listening for clogged pipes, be listening for where kings should be in the spring of the year, and be listening for the name of Bathsheba's second son with David. If you're a guest this morning, you should know that we've been in a series leading up to Christmas looking at the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1. And specifically, we've been paying attention to the four different women that are mentioned in that genealogy. And so over the past few weeks, we've spent time looking at Tamar and Rahab, and last week we looked at Ruth. And this morning, we're turning our attention to the fourth woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And it's a woman Matthew identifies as the wife of Uriah. Well, we know this woman to be Bathsheba. And her story is told alongside King David's story in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And it's an interesting way for Matthew to highlight Bathsheba by calling her the wife of Uriah. Why doesn't he just use her name? Why does Matthew need to bring Uriah into the genealogy? Well, I want you to keep those questions in mind because we'll look at the significance of this identification a bit later this morning. But Matthew's very intentional with his genealogy. He highlights the remarkable stories and people that God has used throughout history to bring about the Savior of the world to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And on our way to Jesus, like I mentioned, we encounter four women who stand out as peculiar. And they're peculiar for a number of different reasons. They're peculiar, first, because they're women, and women weren't normally included in the genealogies of the day. Second, they're peculiar because they're outsiders. They were not raised as a part of God's family. These women did not grow up in the church, so to speak. And they're peculiar because they aren't as morally clean as we'd expect or as we'd even like. And these women are right in the middle of Christ's family tree. And it forces us to come face to face with the good news that God loves to extend grace. He loves to use outsiders and sinners for his purposes in this world so that they might magnify his mercy and his love. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the story of the wife of Uriah, the woman we know as Bathsheba, who's a great, great, great grandmother of the Savior of the world. And so you listen as I read a few verses from Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll rewind to 2 Samuel chapter 11 to consider the story that includes Bathsheba. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now let's rewind and take a look at the story of the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, touching on some highlights from the short uh, from from the book of Second Samuel, beginning in chapter eleven. I'm going to start in verse one. You follow along as I read. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, who was his commander, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, the military commander, sent Uriah to David. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his own house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. So at this point, David's cover-up plan doesn't work. Uriah goes back to the battlefield. He is sent to the front. He is killed in battle, all at David's request. Let's pick back up in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. And so this confrontation that we just read about here, it leads to a season of confession and repentance in David's life, as you know, leading him to write some of the most beautiful Psalms that we have, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, Psalms of confession and repentance. And even though David confessed 
and found forgiveness in the Lord, there were still consequences for his sin, which we read about in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And so David and Bathsheba suffer the consequences as their child dies and they mourn. And then we pick back up with a note of hope in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you've ever heard of a fatberg. Fatberg. Lest you think I'm making something up, this word was added to the Oxford Dictionary in 2015. And the word finds its inspiration from an iceberg. But it's different because a fatberg is not found in the ocean. It's a real thing and it's normally very costly to deal with. A fatberg is a rock-like mass of waste matter in a sewer system formed by the combination of non-biodegradable solids and congealed grease or cooking fat. Are you awake this morning yet? It's why we're instructed not to wash bacon grease down the sink. Well, not long ago, workers in London discovered a monster fatberg in the sewer system under the Whitechapel district of the city. And as you might imagine, these fatbergs pose a problem for sewer systems because they can block up the pipes below the street and cause flooding above. And they can also be huge. The one found under Whitechapel weighed 130 tons and it was almost the length of three football fields. It was such a big deal that, get this, there's a piece of this fatberg displayed in the Museum of London. And so this is highbrow stuff, folks, okay? The Oxford Dictionary, the Museum of London. A monster fatberg like this one discovered in London is a gigantic, disgusting problem. Yet the homes that sit above it are routinely bought and sold for around a million dollars a piece. And I know it's a strange way to open this morning. Hopefully I've gotten your attention. But I want you to consider this whole picture for just a minute. From the outside, above the surface of the street, everything looks elegant and beautiful and expensive. But get on the inside, look below the surface for just a minute, and what you see is one big clogged up fatberg. It's a pretty good picture to have in mind as we consider the sin that still resides in our heart this morning. On the outside, you and I are a group of people who can look fairly put together. Just by looking at us, no one would think that anything's wrong, right? Everything can look so good on the outside. But get on the inside, look below the surface for just a minute, and what you find in our hearts is, is, is clogged with grime and clogged with the nastiness of sin. You know this to be true in your own life. You know what it looks like to project beauty and competence and morality on the outside while also feeling like sin is clogging up your spiritual life and vibrancy on the inside. All of us know what it feels like to project a good Christian image to the world all the while knowing there's a massive problem on the inside that we do not have the resources to fix or even control. We get a pretty good picture of what this looks like from David in our passage this morning. On the outside, it all looks pretty good. He's enjoying peace and prosperity and ease as the story picks up. Yet on the inside, we see that it's not as pretty. 
We see David's twisted internal desires. They bubble over and they cause deep external heartache and pain in our passage. And you may be wondering, what does this story have to teach us about Advent and Christmas? Why in the world are we looking at this story a few days before we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Well, Advent normally is known as a penitential season that invites us to reflect on the sin that we experience in this world and the sin that we find in our own hearts. It's a season where we come face to face with the darkness of sin so that we might be more prepared and ready to welcome the Savior of sin into the world on Christmas Day so that we might be led to the redeeming work of Jesus. And so the past few weeks, as we've considered Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, we looked at the effects of sin on the world. We spent time considering what it means for us to live in a fallen world. And this morning, we're going to use Bathsheba to take a look more internally, to consider the sinfulness that's found in our own hearts. We're going to take a look at the power of sin that still resides in each of our hearts and brings grief and misery to our lives. And this can be difficult, but it's important because sin isn't something that's just out there. It's also something that is inside each of our hearts. We'd like for sin to be a problem that we could easily fix by separating the righteous from the unrighteous, but that would be impossible. Alexander Solhenitsyn, who suffered in the gulag system of the Soviet Union, put his finger on the problem when he said this. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The story of David and Bathsheba paint a picture for us of the sinfulness of the human heart. Yet we also see in the story the redemption that God longs to bring even in the midst of the most broken of stories. And we're going to take a look at this account under those two headings this morning. First, taking a look at the sinfulness of the human heart. And second, turning and looking for just a minute at the redeeming power of Jesus. So first, let's consider the sinfulness of the human heart. The passage begins with an interesting observation in verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, but David remained at Jerusalem. So what we see is spring is sprung in Israel, and it's the time kings normally go out to battle because armies don't overheat in the springtime of the year. And David, the king of Israel, was one who should have been leading his men in battle. But what we see is that he stayed back. He sent his troops and he stayed home. The story begins with David neglecting his duty. He sends others to take care of his responsibilities. The sloth of David is a big theme here. In fact, over the next two chapters, David never once even leaves his house. He doesn't even have to go out there to find sinful opportunities. Sinful desires are flowing from inside his heart. So what we see is David hanging back from his responsibilities as king. He's overconfident. He's defeated by and large all of his enemies. He's earned some rest. He deserves to take a break. We see him wake up from a mid-afternoon nap, which sounds nice. Maybe he decides to take a stroll 
on his roof to enjoy the sunset. And while he's walking, he sees Bathsheba bathing. He glances and it should have stopped there. He could have averted his eyes and moved on, but he didn't. David doesn't turn away. He allows his heart to wonder. He calls Bathsheba and when the king calls, guess what? You come. You obey. And Bathsheba was simply minding her own business, simply pursuing spiritual purity. She was following God's law when David saw her from his own roof. And the king, who should have been the nation's spiritual leader, is walking headlong into spiritual destruction. And he's about to use Bathsheba to get there. What makes matters even worse is that the author tells us that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. Some of you know Uriah is one of David's best friends. He's one of his mighty 37 men who has been with David since his days in the wilderness. And what's more, we also learn that Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam. That might not mean much, but that makes Bathsheba the granddaughter of one of David's closest and most trusted advisors. Well, David's relationship with Bathsheba spirals into pregnancy. And then David proceeds an elaborate scheme to cover up his original sin. He calls Uriah back from the battle in an attempt to make it look like Uriah was the father of this child. And when Uriah refuses to leave David's side and sleep in his own home, David decides that he's got to send him back to the battle with instructions to have him killed. In this passage, David is desperately trying to hide his sin, to cover it up. He might have thought that if he covered it up, if he could bury it deep enough, it didn't really happen. But David can't hide from God. Look at the end of verse 27 where it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's before he encountered Nathan. The Lord saw it all. And here's one of the things we learn about sin from David and Bathsheba. We learn that the power of sin still resides in the human heart and that power is very strong, and you are capable of more than you think. You are capable of more than you think. Just think about David for a minute. This is someone who is described in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and again in Acts chapter 13, as a man after God's own heart. He is a man who had seen God's faithfulness and protection time and time again. A man who was the recipient of the great promises of God. A man who wrote almost a majority of the Psalms that we find in our Bible. Keep in mind who we're talking about here. David is a prime example of the fact that human beings are prone to wonder. Don't ever be surprised at what you're capable of or what your friend is capable of or what your spouse is capable of or what your pastor is capable of. We're all still inclined to sin. We're all still inclined to decisions and actions that can bring deep spiritual sickness to our lives. Paul touched on this inclination in Romans chapter 7 when he said, why is it that I do things I don't want to do and don't do things that I want to do? What's going on with this battle in my heart? Well, the answer is because the human heart this side of heaven still struggles with sin, none of us are immune The power of sin still resides in our hearts. And another thing we see about the sinfulness of the human heart in this story is that there are consequences for our sin. There's an old adage you may have heard before that goes like this. A smoker doesn't think a cigarette's going to kill them because it's never killed them before. Well, this is a little like how we view sin, I think. 
We don't really think sin has the potential to kill us spiritually because it hasn't killed us before. Because we haven't suffered the consequences of our sin like we could. We're walking further into the dark here, but remember there's light ahead. This is just a simple truth that needs to be restated. Our sin has consequences. Those who are united to Jesus by faith have been eternally forgiven and we all stand justified before the Father if we're in Christ, but we still have to deal with the consequences of our sin in this world. And that's not retribution from God. It's simply the natural course of things. Our actions have consequences. And this is very clear in the story of David and Bathsheba. David's action, destroy, actions destroy the lives of many other people in the story. Just think about it. David's lustful look, it all starts with a lustful look and it leads to the abuse of a woman who David should have cared for. It leads to the emotional trauma, guilt, and shame that always comes with adultery. It leads to an unplanned pregnancy. It leads to the manipulation of the military commander Joab to kill Uriah. It leads to a dead husband. It leads to a dead child. David's sin and the repeated attempts to cover it dig him deeper and deeper and leaves tons of carnage in its wake. And this is one of the really difficult things to grapple with as Christians. God's grace doesn't mean that consequences for our sin are done away with. We can still impact others and ourselves with our actions, even though we stand fully and freely forgiven in the sight of God, ultimately forgiven. Well, that's a short look at the sinfulness of the human heart from this story. It's something I think we can all resonate with and understand because the same heart resides in each one of us. And considering the sinfulness of the human heart, it's meant to drive each of us to Jesus. The story of Bathsheba doesn't end in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. As we follow along with her story, Bathsheba's story, we see that the Lord loves to forgive and loves to bring restoration. We see the story of Bathsheba illustrates the power of God to redeem any dark situation. In this story, we see that God longs to bring forgiveness and redemption to people and to the world that he loves. Chapter 12 is all about this. We actually see it at the beginning in a place you might not have noticed. In verse 1 of chapter 12, we see the Lord send Nathan to David. And if you stop and think about it, this is grace in and of itself. God doesn't let David rot in his own sin and just slip away into darkness. He chases David down. God won't let his people be destroyed by their own sin. He loves us enough to chase us down and give us the truth. The rebuke and the discipline of God is always an act of grace. It's a sign that God is still involved in your life, still drawing you back to himself. In fact, the time for you to worry, according to Romans chapter 1, is when God gives up on you. When he allows you to follow your sinful desires without feeling any guilt or shame in your life. When he gives you up to your desires. The fact that you're here this morning is a very good sign. And it's not easy though. We don't like being confronted. It's kind of easy for me because I'm talking to a large crowd. It'd be a lot harder if I were sitting across from you one-on-one to say some of these things. No one likes having their sin brought into the light. No one likes being caught. It can often be too much to bear unless, unless we come to realize and believe that Jesus loves us even in the midst of our sin. Look, Jesus does not come for some future cleaned up version of you. 
as one pastor I love has once said. He loves you right now. Jesus loves you. He loves the you who is prone to lose your temper with your kids, the you who is prone to lie about things, the you who is prone to look at pornography and drink too much alcohol, the you who is prone to grasp so tightly to money and material possessions, the you who has made a mess of their life and hurt others in many ways. Well, Nathan is sent to draw David back. David confesses his sin. He turns away from the bondage that he's been experiencing. He turns back toward God and we see what happens with David's sin when Nathan says this, the Lord has put away your sin. David is forgiven. He's cleansed of his sin. He's given spiritual strength once again, according to Psalm 32. The consequences that David experiences and Nathan's confrontation show us that hard words and hard experience in life can actually be full of grace. In fact, we could say that anything that draws us away from reliance on ourselves, from reliance on our strength, our work, and draws us deeper into relationship and need for Jesus is a good thing. It's grace. I don't know what that thing is in your life this morning. I don't know what hard thing you're dealing with, but maybe, just maybe, that hard thing is something that God wants to use to draw you closer to himself to cultivate a deeper prayer life and more dependence on him, to identify idols and root out and put to death sin in your life. Maybe, just maybe, the hard things that we experience in life are grace in disguise. In the story of David and Bathsheba, it ends with grace. God gives Bathsheba and David another son, and they name him Solomon. And if you know Solomon, then you know Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, according to Matthew, becomes the mother of the world's wisest man. Israel's great king, the author of three books of the Bible at least. And from the line of Solomon comes the savior of the world, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, Jesus himself. And as Matthew recounts the genealogy of Jesus, I love this, he does not let us forget the story of David and Bathsheba. In fact, he calls Bathsheba not the wife of David, but the wife of Uriah. And he does it because he wants to be sure we don't forget the whole story. Matthew wants to highlight the dark scandal that surrounded Bathsheba and the way that God longs to meet the sinfulness of our hearts with even greater grace and forgiveness and redemption. There's a story I heard once about the early church father named Jerome. And Jerome once had a dream in which Jesus visited him in the night. And in the dream, Jerome collected all his money and offered it to Jesus as a gift. And Jesus said, I don't want your money in the dream. So Jerome rounded up all his possessions and he tried to give them to Jesus. And in the dream, Jesus responded, I don't want your possessions. Jerome then turned to Christ and asked, what can I give you? What do you want? And Jesus simply replied, give me your sins. That's what I came for. I came to take away your sins. And this morning, maybe God is inviting you to consider the sinfulness of your own heart and be led back to Jesus, to give him your sins. Today is a day of grace. And in Advent, that's something that we have to remember. Today is a day of grace. Don't wait to come to Jesus until it's too late. 
Advent is meant to be a season of repentance that reminds us that we are all gonna meet Jesus again one day soon, whether we like it or not. He's coming back. And it's God's desire for you that you will meet Jesus on his return as savior and not as judge when he arrives once again to make all things new. In Advent, the time between Christ's first and his second comings is a reminder that we live in a time of repentance and forgiveness. Today is a day of grace. Today is the day that you can go and be cleansed and forgiven and renewed of all of your sin because of what Jesus did at his first coming. God can redeem you. Nothing is too hard for God to restore. He brought Jesus out of this scandalous story and today can be a new day. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you're always at work. Always at work behind the scenes, orchestrating things in such a way where we experience your grace and your love and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for the story of David and Bathsheba. It's hard to read, but it reveals who we are in our sinful nature. And it reveals your passion and desire to redeem and to restore the world and the people that you love. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to move towards Jesus, that we would give him our sins, and that we would experience cleansing and forgiveness. Even now, we pray it in his name. Amen.